Genesis, Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 9. We've started uh, looking at the last week, uh, the, the kind of, um, I'm going to look at the life of Abraham and uh, some very important promises that God gives to Abraham uh, that we're going to look at today. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 9. Starting in verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran, and Abram took Sarai his wife, and Lot his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan, and when they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give you this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord, who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel, pitched his tent with Bethel on the east and I on the, the sorry, with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going towards the Negev. Uh, let's pray. Lord, we pray, Lord Jesus, that during these next few remaining moments, Lord, that you would uh, quiet our hearts and our minds. Lord, we thank you for the songs that we've been singing, reminding us of just who you are, that we can stand upon you, that you are that firm rock. And Lord, we just pray that during these next few moments that you would speak to us through your word. Lord, we thank you for this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever told a lie before? Now, again, you're, you're in church, uh, so as people always say, people always say, uh, you know, uh, you can't lie, you can't lie in church here. Um, have you ever used the words, I promise, I promise I'm going to do this. I, sometimes I find myself using those words uh, to, to our kids, and, uh, and, and sometimes we say things, and like, no, no, really, I, I promise, I really am going to do that. I really am going to be there, I promise. Why in the world do we have to use those words sometimes? It's because we break those promises, don't we? There's times when we say we're going to do something, and what happens? We don't do it. There's times when we say we're going to be somewhere, and what happens? We're not there. And so a lot of times, we, when, when we in, are in those situations, we have to use those words to be like, listen, this time, I promise, I'm going to do this. One of the, um, you know, we just came through a, an election. Uh, how many times have you heard the politicians say that? I promise. When you, get, when you vote for me, I promise that I'm going to do this, X, Y, or Z. I promise that, I, that if you vote for me, you were, you, this is what's going to happen. And we hear that over and over and over again. They're doing what? When they get in the office, what happens? 
They never do what they promise. But so many times, even as as parents, again, we use those to teach our kids. Now this time we're going to do it when we say those words. But did you know that there is somebody that he never breaks his promise? A hundred percent. No matter what the person says, it always comes true. A hundred percent of the time. And of course, you know that that person, of course, is, is, is God. Uh, but yesterday, as we were uh, driving in the car yesterday, there was a song that came on Family Life. That uh, kind of a new song that they've been playing over these past uh, several months. Dealing with just that. That God is, is a man of His word. In fact, uh, first, uh, I'm not going to read the whole song. It's, uh, if you can uh, go on YouTube and listen to it, it's like a seven, eight minute song. Uh, so, decided not to play the whole thing, uh, just uh, to read a couple lines here. But the, the Maverick City Music uh, is the one that sings it. It says, you're a man of your word. Here we go. This is what it says. All things are possible when we believe. Old chains are breakable when we, when we receive. Yahweh, you keep your promises. If you said it, we believe it. If you said it, we believe it. Because you're a man of your word. I mean, really, in a real sense, when you think about, you know, who God is, and, and we've been singing about, you know, how He is that rock that we can build our lives upon, that He is that, that faithful God that we can trust. And why do we, why do we say these things? Why do we, if God said it, and, and we can believe it, and we can trust it, why? Because He never breaks His promises. Never. If He said it, it's going to happen. And we're going to see these very important promises that God gives to Abram at this time. I know that we, we kind of looked at these uh, this first part of Genesis chapter 12 uh, last week. Uh, but these two promises, if you want to know kind of, kind of the central passage of Scripture that, that the rest of the Bible really talks about, it really comes down to these nine verses and these two promises that God gives to Abram at this time. The rest of Genesis deals with these two promises. Exodus, as we'll see, deals with these two promises. Uh, and then the Joshua deals with these two promises that God gives at this point in time to Abram. Last week, uh, we began looking at uh, Abram and kind of introducing ourselves to Abram. And we saw a couple things. Uh, and I know that, as I said, I am a map person. I'm one of those people that when you're reading in the Old Testament and all of a sudden you're like uh, saying this name or that name, I pull out my Bible atlas and figure out, you know, where in the world is that happening and so forth. And so this is uh, kind of help us uh, these places that, that Abram is there, starts off with Ur in the Ur of the Chaldeans there. And he is there with his father, uh, Terah, and the, and the rest of his family. His father decides it's time to leave Ur and to go north. In fact, he go north to Haran. And that's a, about a 600-mile journey. And the, the average person during that time only was able to travel about 20 miles a day. And so you're talking about a month, a month and a half journey. They, they stop at Haran. 
after that many months, after a month, month and a half of journey, they, they decide, let's just set up camp here. And that's where we, we kind of start here in Genesis chapter 12. Terah, Abram's father, passes away. And then we have God coming to Abram at that time and saying, listen, get up, leave Haran, and go south to the land that I'm going to show you. Of course, that land is down in Canaan, the land of Canaan there. And again, that was a 300-mile journey. So you're talking about a half a month of travel down to there. We also saw... Not only does Abram leave his, his homeland to, to travel to a foreign land, but we also saw that his wife Sarah has some problems. And again, this is back up in chapter 11 we saw last, last uh, uh, week. That said, in verse 29, we saw, And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. And when you jump down to verse 30, you realize that there's a problem. With Sarai. And the problem is, is that Sarai cannot have children. If you're following along in your outline, uh, I know I'm sorry, I, all those people who are like, oh, uh, yeah, um, like crazy, like, oh my goodness, he just missed a blank. Uh, here's the first one. Uh, Abram left his homeland to travel to a foreign land. Sorry about that. Abram left his homeland to travel to a foreign land. The second point, Abram's wife Sarai was unable to have children. Again, this is what we kind of uh, just uh, re refreshed our memory of what happened uh, last week, what we talked about. But she was unable to have children. And in Abram's day and age, that, this was huge. The culture at that point in time was that you wanted to have, especially, a, a firstborn son. Because it was the son that would then inherit from the father to then pass it on to the next generation. And the firstborn son was so vital. The firstborn son was the special son that got double portion. Now they also took care of their aging parents, as we joke around with Lucas all the time. Uh, whenever we are able to retire and we're at the point, you better have a room for us because we're moving in with you. Because that's the job of the firstborn son. Some communities even today, like the Amish community, that's what happens. The firstborn son takes care of their parents. And here's the problem. The problem is this. Abram and Sarai don't have any kids. And in that culture of the day, this is not true, but this is what they believed, okay? This is not true, but this is what they believed. The amount of kids that you had were seen as blessings from God. Now, the, that is true. The Bible does say that. But if you were unable to have kids, it was seen as God's cursing you. And that's where it's not true. Every single child that God gives us is a blessing from God. Sometimes we wonder that as parents, but it is true. It is a blessing from God. And sometimes you have to walk out of the room and say, Lord, I know they are a blessing from you, but I'm about ready to pull my hair out right now. No, my family jokes around with me that I'm losing my hair and I'm thinking... 
when you have four kids, you, you, you wonder why. So now some of you have a lot more bigger families though, than four. So. But, it's, uh, but it is. Children are a blessing from God. And in this culture, the more kids you had, the better you were. You're like, man, you walk in with like 13, 14, 15 kids and the people looked around and they weren't like, oh my goodness, shame on you. They were thinking, man, that is a blessing from God. That huge family. It's interesting how our culture has flipped that nowadays. Sarai was barren. Abram, they could not have kids. And so the culture that that day was saying, God is cursing you. God is cursing you. And in this context, we find Abram. And God comes to Abram and he gives these very, very important promises that really, as I said, the rest of Genesis flows out of these promises. The rest of the Bible flows out of these promises. That's why Abram, who comes Abraham, is such an important person in the Bible. And so God comes to Abram in Genesis chapter 12, in verse 2, and he says this. I will make you a great nation. The first uh, promise that God gives to Abram is this. The Lord will make Abram into a great nation. Now that word and that understanding of great means, means numerous. Means, it means a large nation. Will you imagine Abram, God coming to Abram? I mean, he's 75 years old at this time. Sarai is 65 years old at this time. And God's coming to him and says, Listen, I am going to give you numerous descendants. I'm going to make you into a large nation. And probably in the back of Abram's mind, like, Yeah, that's nice, God. What are you going to do? Give me a new wife? Like, come on. How is this possible? I will make you. To be a large, numerous nation with many, many descendants. God uh, then con continues. And so you have then Abram leaving, uh, the, leaving the, the land of Haran. Going down into the land of Canaan. That's what verse 4. So Abram went as the Lord had told him. And Lot with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Verse 5. And Abram took Sarai his wife and Lot his brother's son. And again, all these details that you're thinking, why in the world is... And you know, Moses was the one that was putting Genesis together and writing this down for us. Why in the world is Moses telling us all these like details? Because we'll find out in the, in the weeks ahead that these details play a very important role. They can take all the possessions that they gathered and the people that they have required. And again, Abram is a very wealthy person. He's not poor. And we see that because of all the possessions and people, servants that he required there in Haran. And they went down to the land of Canaan. Jump down uh, to uh, verse 7 and we see this. Then the Lord appeared to Abram. So he is there in the land of in the land of Canaan. He's a foreigner. He doesn't own any piece of land. He's just living there. In fact, his entire life, he never owns a piece of land except for when his wife Sarai dies and he has to go and purchase a cave to bury her. And that's the only piece of land that Abram will ever own. 
in the land of Canaan. So as Abram is there in the land of Canaan, as he is living there as a foreigner, verse 7, God comes to him again and gives him the second promise, the first promise. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to give you many descendants. Second promise, verse 7, to your offspring, I will give this land. This land of Canaan, the Lord will give Abram's descendants the land that he is living in. He promises, I will do this. I will give this land to your descendants. And again, humanly speaking, Abram in the back of his head is probably thinking, God, I, I understand you're promising these things to me. How is this going to all play out? And over and over and over again, you see, if you read these first nine verses, you see God coming to Abram and saying, I will do this. I will do this. I will do this. I'm promising you. I'm going to do this for you. And it's not going to be because of you. It's going to be because I, the Lord, will do it for you. The Lord is going to give this land to your offspring. So how does Abram respond to these promises? Uh, end of verse 7. He builds an altar to the Lord. In other words, as God gives them these promises, he, he begins, he builds this altar as a sign of, I'm worshiping you, I'm bowing down to you, I'm praising you because of who you are and these promises that you're given to me. I'm trusting in you. I don't know how this is all going to play out. And we'll see that in Abraham's life, in, in Abram, Abraham's life, that, that there are times when he doubted these promises. When he's thinking in his mind, God, why in the world are you taking so long? Come on, I'm not getting any younger. But he trusted. He worshiped God. Then of, uh, of verse, um, verse 8. Again, he builds an altar to the Lord and he called upon the name of the Lord. And you'll see in your Bibles and up on the screen that the word Lord is capitalized, all capital letters. And the reason why is because that is God's personal name, Yahweh. He builds an altar to Yahweh. The I am. The creator God. And he recognized and saying, God, I don't know how this is going to play out, but I'm trusting in you. I'm trusting in you. So what happens to these promises? Do, does the two promises that God gives to Abram, how does, do they happen? We've been just singing, you know, God is faithful, that God is, uh, that we can trust Him, that God is, uh, that we can trust in His Word. Do these two promises come about? And the answer is yes. Abram doesn't see the results of these promises. But the fulfillment of these promises happened 500, 600, 700 years down the road. And we wanted to see that because, because we, we need to be encouraged ourselves. That, you know what? God's word is true. And when God says these things, he just isn't making these promises and say, like we do. It's like, hey, I, I, I'm going to be there. I promise I'm going to be there. He makes these things and says, I'm going to do this. And he does. And he does. The first one, God uh, promises Abram that he is going to be this 
this uh, great nation. And you have to fast forward all the way to Exodus. Exodus chapter 1. Now there's a lot of history that happens between uh, Genesis chapter 12 all the way to Exodus chapter 1. You have, of course, uh, uh, the fulfillment that, uh, yes, uh, that God gives uh, Abram and, and at that time Abraham and Sarah uh, a son, Isaac, and, and then Isaac gets married and has, has, uh, uh, has uh, sons, and then and all the way up to uh, uh, Israel having multiple sons. But in, Genesis, sorry, in Exodus chapter 1, verses 8 through 9, we have this scene where you flip the page from, Exodus, from Genesis to Exodus, and you see that... They're in the, the nation of Israel is in Egypt at the time. And listen to how Moses begins in Exodus chapter 1. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And so there's, there's a time gap between verses 7 and 8. Where at the end of Genesis, you have Joseph going to Egypt. You have uh, Israel and his, and his little family traveling down to Egypt. Seventy people all together going to down in Egypt. And God uses Joseph to not just save his own family, but to save the entire world at that point in time because of a severe famine. And all of a sudden, in verse 8, you realize that there's this new king that doesn't know Joseph, that doesn't know the history of Egypt, that doesn't know how God used Joseph to, to save many, many people from famine. Verse 9. He says to his people, Behold, the people of Israel, or the nation of Israel, are too many and too mighty for us. All of a sudden, you have 70 people go down to Egypt, and this generation is multiplied and multiplied and multiplied and multiplied to the point where the most powerful nation in the world, Egypt, at that point in time, is scared out of their wits and thinking, if the nation of Israel joins up with our enemies, we're going to be in trouble. Because that's how numerous they've become. In fact, you continue in Exodus chapter 1. They be, the, the population of the Israelites are growing so rapidly that the king is like, we got to do something about this. We can't have them be growing and, and outnumbering us. So, so he calls the midwives and says, you got to kill the sons. And of course, the midwives don't. And God blesses them and continues to multiply the nation of Israel to the point where all of a sudden the king begins and says, okay, we're, if the midwives aren't going to do it, then we're going to do it. And we're going to throw all the, all the baby boys into the Nile River and kill them. And again, multiplying, multiplying, multiplying until the time of Exodus when it's estimated Somewhere between 1.5 million to 2 million people leave Egypt. I know these, those numbers are, are kind of thinking, okay, how, how, many, how many is that? It would be like this. The entire area of Philadelphia would just get up and leave Pennsylvania. Now some of us with everything happening, I'll be freely admit. We're like, yeah, here we go. Knock them off. But just so that to give you put the politics aside, that would be the extent of it. Of the Exodus. 
God comes to Abram. In Genesis chapter 12. 570 years before. Has no kids. Is an old man in the standard of being a parent. And says, I'm going to make you a mighty nation. With many, many descendants. Fulfillment of these promises, number one, Exodus 1, verses 8 through 9. The people of Israel became a great nation about 575 years later. So does God keep that promise? The answer is yes. The second one. God's gonna, God promises the land that Abram is in. The land of Canaan. And, and in order for us to see, you know, does God keep that promise? You have to continue after Exodus uh, to Leviticus and, and into Numbers and even into Deuteronomy. And you have, uh, you have over close to 695 years later to the time of the book of Joshua. And you have here where, where Joshua is entering into, crosses the Jordan River, and Joshua is leading the, the nation of Israel into, why do we call it the promised land? Because God promised it back in Genesis chapter 12. Why in the world, at the end of the book of Joshua, do you know you, you have God, the Joshua describing this tribe is, owns this part of the land, this tribe owns this part of the land, and those are the chapters usually, you know, like, 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 unless you're like me and pull out the, uh, the map and like, ooh, this is kind of neat. You're like, oh my goodness, like, what am I gonna, how am I going to read this? And flip it through like, like we do with the book of Leviticus. Because it's just, it doesn't have that devotional context. But it's so important. Because here it is. They're going into the land. They're conquering the, the, the Canaanites and the, the Hittites and all those other ites that are living there. And God is fulfilling these promises that he has given to Abram close to 700 years before. They're entering into the promised land. God gives the promised land to the nation of Israel in the book of Joshua. The book of Joshua, God gives the promised land to the nation of Israel. Of Israel. Genesis chapter 12. God comes to Abram and says, Listen, I understand your, your situation right now. You, you're, you're in this land, you're a foreigner, you don't own anything. But one day I'm going to give you your, your descendants this land. Oh, yeah, and by the way, it's descendants. I know right now you have no kids. Sarai is barren. She can never have kids. But guess what? I am going to make you a, a mighty nation that has numerous people a part of it. Abram didn't see it. But why does Moses and why does Joshua spend so much time in giving us these details about what's happening? Is because we can see that God is faithful. God is faithful. He always, always keeps His Word. 
It may be a promise that he gave to Abram, and, and, and it took 700 years until the, the right time. You think about the promise that he has given us and his disciples as in Acts chapter 1, as Jesus is going up into heaven, and these people, the, the angels come down, and the disciples are looking up at the sky and think, okay, Jesus, where are you? What's going on? Are you guys going to fall to the earth now? This thing called gravity, what's going on here? These angels come and say, hey, the promise is this. Just as Jesus, you saw Jesus go, one day, you're going to see him appear. It's taken 2,000 years. And people will be like, oh, that's, you know, that, that's not going to happen. But God always keeps his word. If he said it's going to happen, guess what? It's going to happen because God cannot lie. He cannot lie. We may not like it. You think of the things in His Word. It is true. Regardless of what man says. Regardless of what people say. Regardless of, oh man, that's old-fashioned. That, that, that's not true today. Maybe it was true back then. No, 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 no. God's word is true. And Romans tells us this. In fact, in Romans chapter 1, 2, and 3, Paul lays out the argument that every single person in this world is, 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 are, is guilty before God. Every single person in this world is without excuse. Well, when they stand, it doesn't matter where they live. It doesn't matter if they've never heard, if they ever heard the name of Jesus before. It doesn't matter. When they stand before God, they are going to, they, they are, they are, they are without excuse when God judges them. Because of the, 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 what, how God, put things in creation because of the testimonies that he has uh, has put in creation and other people and so forth. But they are without excuse. He gets to Romans chapter 3 and he's talking about the reason why uh, the, the Jewish people are without excuse. I mean, you think, you think uh, they're the ones, you know, God gave them the law. God gave them his word. Surely they would be without excuse. And Paul goes through this argument and says they are. But he raises this question and says this. But what happens if people, the Jewish people say, nah, God's word isn't true. Are those people still without excuse? Romans chapter 3, verse 4, says this. By no means. In other words, it doesn't, just because someone says God's word is not true, doesn't nullify the fact that God's word is true. By no means. It doesn't change. Why? Because let God be true, though everyone were a liar. If the entire, what Paul is saying here, if the entire nation of Israel was to come out and say, you know, the law, we, we were wrong. The law is not from God. The law is, is, is the word of God is totally false. We, we've disproven it. If the entire nation of Israel was to say that, well, guess what? It doesn't change the fact that God's word is true. Why? Because it comes from God. And God cannot lie. Modern day context. 
It doesn't matter if a bunch of smart people with PhDs say that, that the world came about through this natural evolution process and so forth that is totally against God's word and say, hey, we've proven it. God's word is still true. And they're not. Because God is true. And God can never lie. And that's what these promises, that's why these promises are so important for us today. Yeah, Abram lived uh, 2,000, 4,000 years ago. And you're thinking, how in the world does this apply to us today? It's because these promises that we see in God's Word that He gave to Abram in, in, in chapter 12, and that God fulfilled it 600, 700 years later, encourages us today. And Abram learned this very important lesson. And we need to learn this important lesson in our own lives. That God is a man of His Word. And He will always, no matter what life circumstances we are in, He will always keep His promises. He will always keep His Word. And we can stand firm upon that belief, regardless of the situation we find ourselves in. God is faithful. He always keeps His Word. He cannot lie. Let's pray.